2: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to Behind the Knife and another episode of the Big T Trauma Series. Today is part two of our mini series on the resuscitative thoracotomy. If you haven't listened to part one, we highly recommend you do so. My name is Patrick Georgeoff, and I'm an acute care surgeon at Wake Med Hospital in Raleigh, North Carolina. Joining me today are two of my good friends and former co-fellows at the home of Big T Trauma, the University of Texas in Houston. We've got Dr. Teddy Puzio, who's currently faculty at UT and assistant program director for the acute care fellowship, and Dr. Jason Brill, who's currently uh, stationed in beautiful Hawaii and serving with the Marine Corps. And uh, at least part of his time is devoted uh, to the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command as his trauma medical director. Let's get started. All right, Patrick.
3: Yep. So in part one, we covered the who, not the band, but is in who gets an ED thoracotomy. Today, we're discovering the how, as in how to do an ED thoracotomy. After today, you should be more comfortable with this emergency procedure and our goal is for you to be better prepared if and when you're faced with this task. So, Teddy, think back to your first ED thoracotomy. How did you prepare for this case, if you want to call it that?
1: And I, I still, I still remember it like it was yesterday. Um, and I, that's a great question, right? Like, how do you prepare for something that is such a kind of dramatic um, procedure? Uh, so, just like one. Right. Yeah. A, a rare one, uh, depending on where you are. So uh, just like other emergency procedures, chest tubes, um, air, surgical airways, yes, there is a role for simulation, right? You should spend time in the cadaver lab uh, doing the asset courses if you can. But I think it's something, it's also worth worth in uh, discussing the importance of mental rehearsal. Uh, One of my mentors in residency was a NCAA athlete and he talked about this a lot, you know, the importance of mentally rehearsing and visualizing uh, what what it is we're doing. They do that in competitive sports. And if you think about it, you know, we as surgeons, we're similar to professional athletes, right? We have a special trade that takes practice to become an expert. And one of the best ways to become proficient at what you're doing is through mental rehearsal. So if you, learn how to do this and you take the time to kind of see yourself performing the task. Um, I think it's important for us, you know, it's not only about reading books, right? You can read how to perform a Whipple or a proctectomy the next day, but really you should, I would urge you to take the time to really think about those steps and see yourself performing those steps. Um, and I, this is especially true in emergency procedures, um, such as ED thoracotomy so that you can, you know, when you get, to the point where you're doing it, you've already mentally rehearsed in your mind.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Let's um, and, and so with that, let's start with the case. So you've got a 22-year-old male who is shot in the left chest. En route with EMS, he has a systolic blood pressure of 70, a heart rate of 120, and a GCS of nine. And he gets transferred over to the bed, and lo and behold, he has no pulse on arrival. And with that, Brill, it's go time. So can you walk us through... Uh, the steps of an ED thoracotomy, really the, the, the overview.
1: From the cheap seat.
3: Yeah. (laughs) So here it is. Number one, make incision. That's a good start. Yeah. yeah. Most procedures start that way. (laughs) Number two, get into the chest. Number three, take down the inferior pulmonary ligament. Number four, incise the pericardium. And immediately after that, deliver the heart, fix holes if you find them and perform cardiac massage. And number five, incise the pleura around the aorta and cross clamp the aorta itself. Two important steps that we should not leave out that are occurring simultaneously, if not already done, include the placement of a right-sided chest tube and securing the airway while hopefully you as the surgeon are performing the resuscitative thoracotomy.
2: Great. Now, how about some of the specifics? Let's go over some tips and tricks. Sure. So now let's skim the wave tops. So
3: back to step one, make incision. So this is a wide left anterolateral thoracotomy. So Teddy, can you go over a few key points to this
1: step? Yeah, I think so. The two things to remember, uh, the quote that you'll remember is cut the bed and cut the nipple.
2: Teddy, are are you really cutting the bed and the nipple though? No, don't,
1: don't, don't actually do that. And if you do, don't quote me for saying that, but you know, this is a, this is a big incision, right? Uh, at, at UT here in Houston, we love to say, uh, and you guys remember this big problems require big incisions, right? You start at the sternum and you go as far down towards the bed as you can go. Don't skimp on this. I can, I promise you, because it, the when you skimp on it, you will feel the ramifications on that. You will really, really hinder your exposure and make all the things that you're trying to do much, much harder.
2: Right. Uh, exactly. And you mentioned, what about the nipple then? What, what, how is that an anatomic
1: landmark for
2: a resuscitative thoracotomy?
1: Yeah. That's it. So this is not, this is, I think um, from Dr. Feliciano um, who actually said, you know, you don't actually cut the nipple, right? Um, this is a reminder that you should go as close to the nipple as you can. Uh, if you go too low, you will remember that for the next time because your exposure again is gonna be terrible. Um, and in a female, you wanna follow the inflammatory crease uh, and just kind of curve a linear. So it's also important to remember that when you're doing this, when you're making this incision that the line is not a straight line from the sternum to the bed, right? It's important to remember that the ribs actually curve upwards So your incision should follow the ribs, try to predict the curvature of the ribs as best as possible. Uh, And it's all about exposure. Um, It's really important to kind of, to get this right.
2: Right. And so what about the technique when you're actually making that cut? Um, I've heard, you know, multiple times before, three swipes and you're in, is, is, is that what you're going for?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good thing to target, right? The point is to, this is not the time to be shy, right? This is not an elective procedure, the patient is dead and you need to move efficiently and safely. So three swipes should get you through the skin, the sub Q, and through the intercostal muscle.
2: Right on. So now that you get down onto the chest, Brill, what's what are the next steps? All right. So back to step number two, get into the chest.
3: I think the best way to do this is with curved Mayo scissors, trying to cut on top of the rib because the intercostal neurovascular bundle runs below I typically have a a 21 blade scalpel and and long curved mayos in my hands from the thoracotomy tray. And that's really all I need for entry. Um, And this is not a procedure where people are going to be handing you instruments typically. And so you don't want to be turning back and forth looking for instruments. And so if you've got those two, you'll be able to get through steps one and two pretty quickly. And then you can still use those instruments for later steps.
2: Sure. Okay. So you're in the chest now and you actually have a finichetto in your hand. What's next?
3: All right. So now you need some exposure and you do not want manual retraction. Remember ribs are breaking. Uh, It's very bloody at this point. So you use your finichetto rib spreader and the quote to remember is bottom of the U towards you. So if you don't set it up this way, you're eventually going to block your ability to extend your resuscitative left thoracotomy over to a clamshell. When you go through the sternum, we'll get to that in a little bit. And, and two other key points, you often will break ribs when spreading open the chest and, and that's okay. And in fact, it can actually be good because it ec- increases your exposure. And second, be careful when cranking on the finishetto. It's really easily, uh, you, it's very easy to get axillary skin and fat caught up in the crank mechanism. Um, and if this happens, then it'll stop cranking and you'll have to reverse course, wasting some time and, you know, lose some style points maybe. So you're going to have to literally push that axillary stuff out of the way and then elevate the finishetto slightly while you're opening the chest.
2: Sure. And, and exposure is critical. We've said this before. Um, it, after doing just one ED Thor Academy, you will quickly learn how hard it is to see inside the chest, especially in a uh, Chama Bay with terrible lighting. Uh, And that's why these previous steps are so important. You absolutely must maximize exposure if you want to do heroic things. So um, now that you're in the chest, that lung, that left lung is definitely going to be in your face. And uh, it's always a good idea if you have an assistant to lift that left lung up and out of the field as best as they can. And, and similarly, if, if the patient physiology will allow for, you can ask anesthesia to advance the endotracheal tube into the right main stem, uh, thereby decreasing airflow to the left lung. Uh, this can also help with exposure. So, so Teddy, we're, we're in now and we have good exposure. What's next?
1: All right, so next step is to take down the uh, inferior pulmonary ligament and incise the pericardium. Uh, so the inferior pulmonary ligament is it's really the inferior most attachment of the lung. Sometimes this is not very substantial, um, it's variable, but it's important to excise it uh, because it actually helps with exposure to the heart. Uh, it's uh, important to remember uh, also because it's in close proximity to the inferior pulmonary vein, right? So that means you need to slow down to do this so you don't get too aggressive and get into the inferior pulmonary vein. And then you have bigger problems. Um, so the, the ligament ends where the inferior pulmonary vein is located. So don't just, again, don't just plow into that. You can start by incising inferiorly and then pull most of the rest of the ligament away from the pericari- pericardial attachments bluntly.
2: Sure. And, and what about the pericardium? Do you always open the pericardium?
1: Yeah. I mean, this, This is a must. As they say in in Top Knife, the closed pericardium is an enigma. Open it. It's important to note that this can be, it's not easy to grasp the pericardium. If you've never done it before, you'll hear this and it doesn't make much sense. But once you try, you'll you'll see. Um, You can try tooth pickups, but that doesn't always work. In the end, your fingers and a pair of scissors usually work the best. Um, You can try to pinch the pericardium or simply stabilizing a small area. You can also snip a small hole in the pericardium with scissors. Uh, But once you're in, you can use your scissors to open the pericardium parallel to the phrenic nerve.
3: Yeah. And if you have true tamponade where the pericardium is just absolutely taut, uh, I think the tip of a a 10 or a 21 blade scalpel is if you reverse that and use kind of the blunt edge and just get the tip in there to nick, uh, then after that initial nick, you can scoot your scissors in and then open it up the, the
2: way that Teddy is talking about. Right. And you want to be very careful with the, with the scalpel. Sometimes that's the only way you can do it, but uh, definitely seen injuries, uh, atrogenic injuries to the heart, uh, yep, the use of a scalpel. Um, it's also critical to open the pericardium widely enough to allow, uh, the entire heart to be delivered. So you don't want to skimp on that either. Make sure you open the pericardium widely and bring that entire heart out. So, um, all right, Brill, what's, what's next?
3: All right, now we're now we're really moving. Next step, cross clamp the aorta. Now I I wish it were as easy as oh hey there's the aorta clamp done. High Boom. five. Um, <laughs> but un- unfortunately, it's not. I think this is the hardest step of the procedure, um, not only to perform but also to teach. Uh, after it gets messed up. So, for one, you can't see what you're doing in most cases. Often you're literally going by feel. Yep, great assistance. Maybe you can see a little bit about what you're doing, but uh, oftentimes you can't. Uh, and then, second, the aorta will be flat and actually difficult to differentiate from the esophagus, which is just anterior to it. Now, the spine you'll feel posteriorly. Um, so, that's at least one good landmark. And sometimes to overcome, what i would describe as significant hurdles here um, you will want to incise the pleura on both sides of the aorta uh, or you can just make one big snip and then use your fingers to bluntly separate the soft tissue around the aorta itself so at at this point you should be able to feel it and then you can use your typically non-dominant hand to guide a clamp held in your dominant hand across the entire vessel, and entire is in big bold letters here. It's also very helpful to have an OG tube in place. Um, So often once the airway is secured, you want to ask whoever's at the head of the bed to then pass an OG tube. And hopefully they understand the urgency of that because hopefully you're at this step very quickly. Uh, and that's going to help differentiate the esophagus from the aorta, which, again, it it seems silly, but I will tell you it can be very difficult, especially in younger patients, to differentiate between the two when you have got absolutely no blood pressure. And then, as we discussed before, try to ensure your assistant is pulling up on the lung for maximum exposure so that at least you can see a little bit about uh, of what you're doing here.
1: Uh I, Bill, I totally agree with you. I think this is probably the hardest step in this whole thing and I uh going back to our last episode, uh I think this is one of the the steps that is really good to walk through with the residents after. You know, if you're not successful, let them feel, uh let them do this blindly and then let them see it in the trauma bay after the patient's already expired. Um but you know, I think it's important to talk about cross-clamping because you know we're doing this to improve perfusion to the heart, the brain, and the lungs.
2: Right, right. Um, and how about cardiac massage, Brill? Any tips or tricks for that? You want to go with your thumb first, right?
3: <laughs> right, yeah, definite <laughs> way to get a, a bigger injury. Um, so the teaching is to use flat hands on both sides of the heart to compress. You do not use your fingers. And sometimes you'll see people's thumbs sneaking around your entire hand should be flat, you know, like a a good salute. Try not to poke a hole in the myocardium because that really sucks. And now we're talking about losing more than just style points. Um, You want to push blood ideally out from the apex towards the base of the heart. So typically, you know, from the end that's pointing towards you, you know, back up medially. Um, And another thing that I Found surprising after my first um, intern attempt. You know, perhaps as a junior resident, then is you actually get fairly tired doing this, and your your hands you know, can't do this for minute after minute after minute and no comments about my weekends, please. So you will still actually to rotate this task from person to person, um, when appropriate.
2: Yeah. Just like external compressions. You need to have someone up next uh, for you.
0: We are going to take a brief moment to recognize our sponsor for this episode. Cerebral. Did you know that last year rates of anxiety and depression have doubled in the U S these days, it can take weeks to get a traditional therapy appointment. Enter Cerebral. Cerebral is an online mental health service that offers prescription medication, counseling, and therapy for anxiety, depression, ADHD, insomnia, and more. Cerebral is one of the few services that provides prescription medication online through a licensed provider and ships medication straight to your door. With Cerebral, you can schedule sessions based on what's most convenient for you and don't have to wait weeks to be seen. And you can do your sessions from home. That's why 70% of patients choose Cerebral because it is the most convenient option. Cerebral offers affordable treatments that are one-third the price of traditional therapy and treatment options are available with or without insurance. And for listeners of this program, you can receive 65% off your first month of medication management and care counseling at cerebral.com slash btk. Go to Cerebral.com slash BTK for 65% off of your first month. That's just a total of $30 to get started. Join Cerebral today on their mission to make quality mental health care accessible and affordable for all. Now, back to the episode.
2: And so, so Brill, what if you identify a cardiac injury or for that matter, what if you have blood dumping out of that uh, chest you put in the right chest when you started this whole process?
3: No, great. That means more surgery. More surgery. Um, I mean, perhaps not great for the patient, but again, these are the patients that are perhaps at the highest chances of survival after the thoracotomy because these are surgically fixable issues. Uh, so both of these are findings um, that are indications for a clamshell thoracotomy. So the easiest way to come across the sternum is with a Lebski knife. And if that isn't available, I will tell you, as I actually had to do last week, a quality pair of trauma shears will often do the trick. So once you come across the sternum, you can make a right anterior lateral thoracotomy the same way that you did on the left. Um, Now, some people will go a rib space higher. higher. I personally don't think that it matters as long as you are moving quickly and efficiently through this. So this then creates a critically important additional step, which I promise if you forget this, you'll never forget it after the initial job because you need to remember to tie off the internal mammary arteries on each side of the sternum that you just cut through. So you may not see them do anything at first. In fact, sometimes they're even hard to appreciate right after you've gone through the sternum. But in the case that you actually get return of a blood pressure, they will hose. They will bleed a ton on you. Ask
1: him how he knows. And that's why yeah. you wear eye protection, right, bro? At least one yep. of the reasons why you wear eye protection.
3: Yeah, going back to our, our PPE comment from the the previous episode. So at, at the very least, I would say put some clamps on them. And I, ideally, although you don't want to spend a ton of time doing this, if you've got an assistant, you hand it off to them and they should ligate both sides, proximally and distally. And, and for your math majors, that's a total of four ties.
2: Thank God. Okay. All right. So
3: yeah, write, write it down,
2: Patrick. <laughs> I'm working on it right now.
1: <laughs> Show notes.
2: <laughs> All right. A few other questions to consider. Um Uh, Teddy, how about you for this one? How do you go about repairing a hole in the heart?
1: Oh, yes. All right. So, you know, the first thing that's important to point out is doing this in the trauma bay is not always easy because you have very, very poor conditions, right? Um, But you can get the patient somewhere else uh, to the operating room by controlling the bleeding, right? So the, probably the best way to do this is with your finger and uh, just put your finger over the laceration and you can control a fair amount of bleeding from the heart. The other option that you'll definitely read about in the textbooks is to put a Foley catheter into the wound uh, and then carefully inflating the balloon while kind of holding traction upward. I can tell you that this sounds great, but you can actually do damage with this if you're, you know, if you pull too hard on the, the Foley. So I, I try to get It control with just a finger if you can. Um, Another commonly accepted way to repair cardiac defects is with a 3-0 proline suture on an SH needle. Um, And if you have them, felt pledgets in a horizontal mattress fashion is kind of the ideal scenario. Uh, You want to make sure that when you're doing this, that you take adequate bites of the myocardium so that you avoid tearing Um, And then it's also important to point out, depending on the location of the injury, so posterior heart lacerations can be challenging, right? And the reason for that is if you're trying to approach a posterior injury, you can cause a lot of problems when you're manipulating the heart anteriorly uh, to, to assess it. So if you lift on the heart, you can cause obstruction, you can cause hypotension, and potentially, uh, you know, cardiac arrest by arrhythmias. So
3: yeah, no, no other better way to stop inflow to the heart than by
2: lifting simply it. lifting.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah, and and honestly, that's one of those things that you don't know until either someone tells you or experiencing, right? So you should hear and know that lifting the heart is not a benign thing. And then you know, finally, again, it's something that's talked about. And I know if there's any cardiac surgeons listening, they'll they'll. This will hurt them to hear, but it's described using staples um, to, in the place of suture to kind of help close it, an injury in the setting of an emergent situation, but again, not fully preferred. So you can do stuff in the in the trauma bay with what you have, but if you can get control with a finger and get to the OR, that's probably the best place to to deal with it
2: right and if you do have an injury posteriorly that you have to approach by lifting the heart you want to have some kind of rhythm or timing to that so you can lift the heart up spend however many seconds uh, you have to place a suture or tie down a knot before you put that heart back down and uh, allow for forward flow uh, and avoid uh, a rest essentially. And so um, if you've been in this scenario, you'll find yourself in a kind of a rhythmic fashion where you lift the heart, throw a suture, put the heart back down, lift the heart, throw another suture, put it back down, lift the heart, tie a knot, put it back down um, uh, again to, to allow for, for
1: forward flow. I think we called the one, two, three, go one, two, three, go. <laughs>
2: So uh, Brill, how do you go about getting control of bleeding from the lungs? We've talked a lot about the heart, but what about the lung?
3: Yeah, Uh, another structure that can bleed a lot. So you can temporize bleeding by clamping the hilum. Uh, I think the easiest thing, just like we said with the heart, and honestly, probably the safest is just to do it with your hands. Uh, You can also use a clamp or a ramel if somebody has that ready for you. Uh, and then to stop bleeding, you know, there are a number of options. We'll just kind of go through a few quickly. Uh, you can throw some stitches, but just remember not to try to tie them down too tightly. You just want to reapproximate tissue to stop the bleeding. Uh, and that would be for something that's a little more superficial. Or if something is going a little deeper and you see blood that's welling out from this cavity, um, a tractotomy with staplers. also work uh, and then you can actually find what's bleeding and then throw your suture around it Uh, and or you can just pack the chest and apply some topical hemostatic agents um, which i would describe as more of a temporizing maneuver again maybe that's what you've got in the trauma bay damage right you really want to get up to the or and um, take a better look in that case so maybe that's for You know there's some bleeding somewhere, you can't really isolate it, the lighting is bad, and you feel uncomfortable having spent a couple of extra minutes in the the ED and you wanna get up to the OR. And then the treatment of last resort, um, which sometimes is the best treatment, is pneumonectomy. Uh, But we should mention that this results in high mortality. uh, And when I've seen it done, it typically is something that if you are going to resort to pneumonectomy you've got to make that decision right away and have many adjuncts ready hopefully you're in the operating room by this time and your anesthesiologist can work with you to
2: offload the right heart a little bit right things like pulmonary vasodilators etc
1: yeah i think um, the other thing too is uh brill it's probably worth mentioning the hilar twist right not not the dance but the move that you can do in the chest that's a three-step right <laughs> So the, you know, a hilar twist maneuver to, in lieu of clamping the hilum, you can basically just twist the heart from uh, superior to inferior around the hilum. And that accomplishes the same task uh, until you can get to the OR. Teddy, of course, meant to say twist the lung, not the heart. Do things with your hands if you can. Does yeah. it work? I mean, it does work. Yeah, I guess, like yeah. it but it's important to point out that you need to take down your inferior pulmonary ligament before you do that. So so um, follow that step that we talked about earlier.
2: Sure. All right, Teddy, sticking with you, do you uh, clamp the aorta first or open the pericardium first?
1: Yeah. I mean, that, that's a good question. I, I think the books and most people and I would agree would be open the pericardium, right? You want to make sure that there's no tamponade. You want to deliver the heart but it also kind of depends on the situation. Uh, you know, if, if you know that a hundred percent that they died from intra-abdominal bleeding, let's just say they, you know, they had a gunshot wound to the abdomen and they arrest in the trauma bay, then it's probably not unreasonable to cross clamp the aorta, right? They don't, you know, they don't have pericardial tamponade and your goal is to get, um, proximal control. So, um, you know, or let's just say, maybe you even see PEA, meaning you see the heart beating, but there's no pulse because the patient doesn't have any volume to produce any pressure. So I, I think in those settings, I would cross clamp the aorta first.
2: Sure. All right. Uh, Brill, let's say you do this, this violent and very glorious procedure. You do a full-on uh, ED thoracotomy and you get return to spontaneous circulation. What's next?
3: Well, here you'll often see people pause and ask themselves, "Oh, well, uh, this it, it worked. worked. <laughs> <laughs> what do we what do?" <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, kudos to you if you can get organized cardiac activity back, and and now you've got the opportunity to perhaps even um, finish the job and and save this patient. Your answer should always be, "Get up to the OR as quickly as possible." So, uh, even if you don't know exactly what you're doing, you have either a short walk or a short elevator ride or, or some matter of seconds to then figure out your surgical plan um, and and go from there.
2: And, so and I think, it, Brill, on our last episode, you mentioned you actually, you've had patients recently um, survive, right?
3: Uh, right. I mean, every, every one of us will have some good cases from time to time. And I think those are the the patients that, you know, kind of keep you going when you have a run of, you know, many people that, that don't make it. Um, so again, one of those um, kind of awesome stories that just sounds great is, you know, in Houston, when they, uh, when your patient has both a clamshell, and then they require an X-lap because of their burden of injury, we call it affectionately a Texas affectionately. Um, you know, a mark of pride, for both surgeon and patient, um, and I, I personally, as part of a team, you know, had two patients within a couple of months of each other last year survive to walking out of the hospital fully neuro- neurologically intact and fully functional after a Texas T.
2: Sure. So, so anecdotal, but but highly relevant, right? Um, we talked in our prior episode about how dismal the survival numbers are but these are the types of patients that we're fighting for, uh, they're these ones that do, uh, survive and, and walk of the hospital. So last question uh, for Teddy, uh, what is the rest of the room doing when yeah. you are running the show, when it comes to, and performing a thoracotomy or, or yeah, what, what are guiding? they doing?
1: Yeah. I mean, usually there's like popcorn yeah. and, you know, it, it's, it is maybe a, some horror movies sort of,
3: Oh no, <laughs> yeah,
1: it, it can definitely become a spectator event. Right. You know, we, I joked earlier the cheap seats, but you know it's important to make sure that the entire team continues to do their job. If this is a procedure that is not done very often at your center, then people are going to come from far and wide to kind of watch this, right? Um, but it's and the people that are immediately taking care of the patient with you will sometimes stop to watch what's happening. But it's important that you keep the ship moving forward, right? You're the captain. And the job is to make sure that someone's getting venous access, right? Someone is giving the MTP, uh, the the head of the bed is doing the intubation. There are all these things that need to be happening in concert with the actual surgical portion. And, of and the Teddy, staff.
2: what if you're the one doing the cutting? What happens in terms of uh, who's running the show?
1: You know, I mean, ideally, you're not the one doing the cutting and Overseeing the global resuscitation effort. I mean, if you if that has to happen, that's fine. But you should have enough manpower to where there's someone standing back, watching everything happening in concert, and making sure that you know all the other things are also happening.
3: Yeah, I, I second that. Um, and I also really like the Navy reference of the captain of the ship. Um, I think that's, that's quite appropriate. That's for you.
1: That's for you.
3: <laughs> anyway, so right, Thor economy takes away your control of the room, right? You you cannot effectively split your attention between this task, which you need to get absolutely right if you have any chance, even the dismal numbers that we often quote, if you have any chance of making this work, and you can't split your attention between that and the rest of the resuscitation, which we all know is a complex art in its own right. So someone needs to be preparing for the next steps in addition to someone running the resuscitation while, you know, let's say you were the one doing the thoracotomy. Uh, And then a a quick final tip, you know, now that you've gotten return of circulation and you have thrown a sterile something over the, the patient's chest and you are headed on your way up to the OR, repeat a quick primary survey Uh, Right, there's always a few seconds in between those two locations, and you'll be amazed at what starts bleeding externally now that you actually have blood going around the body again with some sort of blood pressure.
2: Very good point. So, I think that that about wraps it up. So, that's this was part two of two of our little mini series on the big T uh, trauma series here, uh, covering the ED thoracotomy. I hope we did it justice. I want to thank uh, uh, Jason and Teddy for for joining me here on Behind the Knife and we hope you yeah, guys all learn the thing or two. Yeah,
1: thanks for having us.
2: All right, guys. Until next time, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.